And then we will turn in our Bibles to the New Testament at this time to Acts chapter 17. And we'll be looking at Paul. And I would guess that Paul used this psalm from time to time when he wrote and when he spoke to the Jews. Because some of the words that we just read seem somewhat familiar. All have turned aside. Together they have become correct. There is none who does good, not even one. And I think that is a familiar sounding passage, isn't it, from the book of Romans. And so let's read from Acts 17. And we're going to find Paul at this point in Macedonia. And this is the third of the cities that he has been in, in Macedonia. And so here's how he got there, Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas from Thessalonica away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. <coughs> when Paul left Berea, he had some believers that escorted him, and he may have reviewed his work in Macedonia. He would have remembered that the first town that he came to was Philippi, and in Philippi there were three notable conversions. Lydia, who was a Gentile, a very rich woman, a businesswoman. She was converted. She was a God-fearer. She became a Christian. She invited Paul to live with her in her home. She had such a large home. And then there was a slave girl. The slave girl was a slave, and she had a spirit in her, and her spirit kept following. When it saw Paul, kept yelling, they proclaimed the way of salvation. And she became so annoying to Paul that Paul came and cast the spirit out of her. Her owners became very angry at this and dragged Paul and Silas to the magistrates. They were beaten and thrown into jail. And that's where the third notable conversion occurred. There was an earthquake at night, and the Roman jailer thought that everyone in his prison had escaped and as he was about to kill himself, Paul noticed, called out and said, no, we're all here. And that jailer asked Paul, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul was able to tell him the gospel. 
And that's what we know about Philippi, three notable conversions. And then we traveled to Thessalonica, and we learned that some Jews were converted, but many Greeks were converted. And some Jews became so violent about what Paul was preaching, they were opposed to him, and they were going to drag him out of his house and bring him to the magistrates, and most likely would have lynched him and killed him. But Paul just happened not to be home. And that's where we started our passage. The brothers immediately sent him away by night. And now we read about Berea. In Berea, many Jews were converted. Many Greeks were converted. But then those people came up from Thessalonica and stirred up the crowd. And the brothers in Berea were very wise. They said, Paul, now is the time for you to leave. And they said, we'll go with you. And so they went with Paul and sent him to Athens. Paul's mission in Macedonia was over. And so we want to spend a few minutes of our time talking about what lessons can we learn from Paul's mission trip to Macedonia. And the first lesson that we learn is that we should not be discouraged by opposition. Paul was compelled by God to go to Macedonia. He had had that vision of the Macedonian man saying, come over here and help. And we don't ever hear Paul saying, I wish I didn't go to Macedonia. They were way too much trouble for me. Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't give up because he had to fight unbelief. He had to teach the gospel wherever he went. He never stopped preaching and teaching about the gospel, no matter what circumstances he found himself in, no matter how stubborn the believers were. Paul knew what kind of people he was preaching to. He described them. He said, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But, he said in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul knew who the people were that he was preaching to. He expected to be converted. John Calvin wrote, it's a wonder that such a small light, the little light that was in Macedonia, when Paul started preaching, began to shine. It was not quite put out, and the seed of sound doctrine didn't wither. A light shone in Macedonia, and even the short time that Paul was there, his teaching was effective, his teaching was fruitful. Later, Paul wrote two letters to, Thess to the Thessalonians, and later, much later, 10 years later maybe, he wrote a letter to the Philippians. And so those churches grew and they thrived. And they were still there. In fact, they have been there for centuries until Islam came and just wiped the churches off in those particular locations. 
We are to be encouraged by Paul. He didn't get discouraged by continual opposition. He was opposed by not only the Jews, but the Gentiles in each of these situations. And that was what he expected. But each time he went to a place, we read that some Jews, some Gentiles were converted. Today we have battles. And we heard this morning about a battle that's going on in the morning service. But we know that we have battles and we could number a number of battles that Christians are fighting today that make us distinctive in the world that we live in. For example, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. That this is a creation of God. Or... We believe that there is only one way of salvation, not a multiplicity of different ways. All these other religions are religions of the devil, so to speak. We believe one way. That's a problem in our society because everyone thinks, oh, just do it your own way. What you think must be the right way for you. We believe in one way. We believe in the sanctity of life. We believe that life should not be thrown away, whether it's in the womb or through euthanasia, when people become sick or they become broken, or even when we don't consider people. We are seeing a genocide today, and we've seen genocides over the years where people have no respect for other types of people people who are different than themselves. They just think we need to exterminate them. This has been something that's happened over and over in history, and it's because people do not respect human life. As Christians, we should always stand up for life. And lastly, we believe that God created male and female. That's it. There are two genders that's how God created us. We can't, we, we can't blend genders. We can't swap genders. We can't disregard genders. We have been born a gender. And that's exactly who we are. And that's what God meant us to be. These are battles that we're fighting today. Paul fought different battles, but the same kind of value battles because he was preaching a gospel that had clear teachings. And so we learn that we need to preach the gospel in spite of opposition. We need to speak the truth in spite of opposition. And perhaps God will fan those sparks just as he did in Macedonia, to life, and people will become converted. The second lesson we can learn from Paul's ministry of Macedonia is that even the enemies of the gospel unknowingly speak valuable truths. And we just uh, had an Easter service last Sunday, and during that Easter service and the Good Friday service, we considered that Jesus was dying on the cross. 
And from our perspective, Jesus was dying on the cross. And there were some people standing around the cross, and they said, boy, look at him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He said he was a king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. How close to the truth is that statement? He was on the cross because he was saving others. That was a close truth. He was going to come down from the cross. He was going to be raised from the dead. These naysayers had truth in what they said. And we can use those truths. And I'm sure the disciples were expanded when they witnessed to these very naysayers and say, look what happened. Some of those naysayers are now in heaven. I sincerely believe that because their view changed. And so the Thessalonian Jews, who should have known better, said, these men have turned the world upside down. And they meant it as a charge against Paul and silence. But in reality, the power of the gospel was changing people. They're saying, look, People are changing. They're becoming different. They're believing different things. And they saw that those converted people were less selfish. They saw that some of those converted people were no longer so cruel to their slaves because this was a slave society. They saw that some of those converted people became more honest in their business dealings. They didn't lie about what they were selling you anymore. They told you the truth. And if they caught you lying, they pointed that out to you. And they said, this is why I believe this. They no longer indulged in all those sexual impurity kinds of things that happened in their society in that time. They recognized that Christians were different. And for a person who became a Christian, their world was turned upside down. Many things change when you become a Christian. And if you have an opportunity to hear the testimony of a Christian, it is wonderful to see how their world became upside down. It changed. And it is changing. And so those Jews had something that they saw in their Christian brothers, so to speak, if they were Jewish brothers, and they saw something changing in the Greek society. When a person becomes a Christian, it's not just a once-and-done event. It's, it's like the light switch was turned on, and then that light starts to shine. And the person that the light shines on, it shows the impurities. And that person slowly on those impurities become clean. And so if you see an old Christian, a person who's been a Christian all their life, it seems like they are so good, doesn't it? An old Christian person? They probably weren't that way when they were young. 
but the light has been shining on them, exposing the sin that's in them. And they have become more and more conformed to Lord Jesus Christ throughout their life. These Thessalonian Christians saw that. They said the world's turned upside down. Yes, the world was turned upside down. But then those Thessalonian Jews said a surprising thing. They said they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. These Jews were saying something that they should not have said. They believed that God was king. Psalm 10, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. They would have remembered from Second Chronicles 20, verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Even Caesar did not require that you worship Caesar only. Caesar wanted you to worship him, of course. But he said, okay, worship all those other things too that you like to worship. And the Jews got a special dispensation. They were allowed to worship their God only. So why were the Jews saying this about Christians? The Jews were inferring that Jesus was an earthly entity. He was a king here on earth. But where was he? Could you find him on earth? No, Paul said he's not in, on earth, he's in heaven. And Paul was teaching that there is a spiritual king who reigned over our hearts and our minds. And there are many times, even today, where when we're talking to somebody who opposes the gospel, they may say things, they may think things that twist truths that we know are true. For example, some of you have gone to school and you've learned about evolution. And you learn that evolution was how all of life originated here on Earth. And then you start asking a question or two. Well, how did it begin then? And they'll have various theories. Well, one of the theories that my son came home with one day, he said, you know what the teacher said? She said that there is a theory called panspermia. Oh, what's panspermia? Well... Life began on earth when seeds were planted on the earth from somewhere out there. And from those seeds, all life emerged. Look it up. This is a theory. Well, as a Christian, you could use this particular theory about the origination of our of life on our earth to say, it takes a lot to believe that, doesn't it? Well, I believe that God created all life on this earth. And I think that's an easier thing to believe than to believe that something from I don't know what came here and seeded the earth. And that's where all life came from. And so when you think about how people are explaining origins, 
you have a way of directing that conversation to God because Christians believe that God is the creator. We need to listen to those who oppose Christianity and see if there is some point where you can insert a testimony about God, about the Lord Jesus Christ. I hate to say this, but when Paul was in the Thessalonica, when he was in Philippi, when he was there, he didn't have time to get into some of these arguments. They were ready to lynch him. They were ready to beat him. He had to leave. And that's what the third point is. Don't be discouraged about from by opposition. The second lesson, don't be surprised when enemies of the gospel speak some truths, and we want to use those truths if we can. But thirdly, know when to leave. Isn't that amazing? In the three cities that Paul visited in Macedonia, he had to leave rather quickly. In each city, Paul was totally engaged in ministry, and then in the next day, he was gone. Perhaps he remembered that Jesus had said, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Jesus was not adverse to people fleeing to the next town. And so in Philippi, he was asked to leave by the city authorities after he had been thrown in prison, and they realized that they had done this incorrectly. So they said, Paul, Silas, and company, just leave. In Thessalonica, he had to sneak out of town by night to avoid being lynched, and who knows what would have happened. In Berea, the brothers said, we're seeing this stuff happen. We know what's going to happen in the end. Paul, you better leave now. And in each case, we do not see Paul putting up a fight, do we? Paul left. Why didn't Paul dig in his heels and determine to stay and face the consequences? Paul said, when I was with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Paul knew that was going to happen. He expected it. Why did he leave when things got really hot? Well, there are some reasons why he must have done this. First of all, he knew that these new churches were going to be persecuted, and he didn't want to flame it more. He didn't want him to be the lightning rod. He wanted to leave those new Christians in a place where they wouldn't be severely persecuted because of him. When the government officials told him to leave, Paul wanted to show that he was sensitive to what the public officials would say. He wasn't defiant of authority. He was an example to these new Christians, and he knew it would be better for him to be alive than for him to be killed as a martyr. In fact, let's say he was killed in Thessalonica, we would have only had one letter from Paul. We would have had Galatians. Because he left each of these towns, 
and he lived a fairly long life. We have 13 letters from Paul in our Bible. God preserved Paul so that we could have our New Testament. Paul didn't know that, but Paul knew when to leave. And even when he left, he left people behind who would help this new little congregation. In Philippi, he left Luke. In Thessalonica, he left Timothy there for a little bit. And then later, he sent Timothy back just to check on him. And then in Berea, Silas and Timothy were there when Paul left. So these churches weren't left without people who could further explain the gospel. They just weren't people who were lightning rods like Paul. They were people who were kind of like under the wire, so to speak. Paul didn't flee Christ's service, but he was always ready to preach and teach in a new town to new people. He said, I'm not afraid of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think Paul had his bags packed. Every day when he left wherever he was staying, his bags were ready. He was ready to go to that next place. He was ready to preach and teach in a new place. And that's how Paul operated as a missionary. We need to know when to leave, when to let it go. We're not getting anywhere here. It's going to be worse for us if we stay. We better leave because it may leave a door open. Do you know that Paul went back to Macedonia on his third missionary journey and he was able to speak to some of the believers there. He didn't go to all the cities again, but he was there and he was able to speak to them. So lesson four, the success of a ministry belongs to God. I don't see anywhere in Paul's writing where he says, I had many converts in Macedonia. He thanked God for the people in Macedonia. He prayed for them. In Philippi, some Gentiles were converted. There weren't any Jews there to speak of. In Thessalonica, some Jews, a great many devout Greeks. Berea, Berea, there were many Jews and not a few Greeks, or in other words, many Greeks. Success belongs to God. I don't think Paul changed the way he preached and taught in any of those places. But some of those places he was more successful than others. And some of the places grew mightily after he left. And so the success belongs to God. And God uses the word of God in order to touch the hearts of the listeners. And the spirit has to work in the listeners to respond to the word of God. And so it is the responsibility of the preacher to make the word of God clear to the hearers. And so the gospel isn't really that difficult to explain. But you need to be able to explain it clearly to your audience. 
And so Paul would change how he explained the gospel depending on the audience he was speaking to. But the gospel itself is not difficult to understand. But the hearers are only receptive to what is being preached if the Holy Spirit has opened their hearts. And so we read, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul did. How you responded to that, he left it in the hands of God. Now Berea is an interesting place. Very interesting place. And let me just ask you a question. In Berea, they had what they, we would call a Berean mind or a Berean spirit. If you were in Berea, these people were ready. God had prepared their hearts. Okay? Would you be able to give the gospel. Give yourself a quiz. Would you be able to speak clearly, clearly enough that the Bereans would understand what you're talking about? Now here's what happened in Berea. Lesson number five, last one. Cultivate in yourself a Berean mind. What do we mean by having a Berean mind? I call it a Berean mind. Quite often it's a Berean spirit. What do we mean? It's somebody who seriously studies the Bible to learn what God says in his word. But it's more. Someone who refuses to take someone's explanation of a Bible passage at face value, but examines the exposition and the scriptures to see if it is true to the biblical text. When Luke says that the Berean Jews, remember it's the Berean Jews, the Greeks are ready to hear the gospel there, but the Berean Jews were more noble. What he is saying is that they were willing to listen to all that Paul had to say. In Thessalonica, Paul may have gotten to the point where he said, you know the Messiah? The Messiah must suffer before he becomes a king before he comes as a conquering king. And the Jews there said, wait a minute, Paul. Stop right there. That's a heresy. Don't say anything else. You are completely wrong. When he got to that point in his presentation to the Bereans, they said, okay, Paul, keep going. Explain what you're talking about. What do you mean the Messiah is going to have to suffer? They didn't argue. They listened. And they wrote it down. They listened to all the scriptures that Paul quoted. They were willing to learn what Paul was teaching. But we said they they were receiving the word with eagerness. All of you have been at school at some point, right? 
Some classes were much more interesting than other ones, right? You liked the teacher, you liked what you heard, the topic was interesting to you. The Bereans wanted to be there with Paul. They liked listening to him. And so I suspect that they were sitting there with their notepads in hand and they were taking notes. But what did they do after class, so to speak? Did they go back over their notes? Do you go back over your notes? Maybe. But these Bereans, they did. In fact, they took their notes and they said, Paul quoted this scripture. Let's take our Bible and make sure that what Paul said that scripture said is what it says in our Bible. They did not take what Paul said at face value. Then they took their Bible, they looked to make sure Paul quoted scripture accurately, and then they looked at the context. Paul isn't just taking these verses out of context, is he? And throwing them at us? No, they checked the context. They said, are there any other passages that said what Paul said, or is just this a one-off kind of thing? They checked cross-references. That's what the Bereans were doing. That's what it means when we study the scriptures to check to see what somebody has taught us is absolutely true. And because they did this, because they followed through, they looked at their notes and they checked everything that Paul said. We read that many Jews believed. And we need to learn the same thing from these Berean Jews. First of all, we need to remember that the doctrine of Christ doesn't fear scrutiny. If someone questions your biblical interpretation on something, you should be ready to challenge them. Check the Bible for yourself. Study what it has to say. We should be willing to look into it ourselves. Something doesn't seem right. Okay, I better check it for myself. That's the Berean spirit, the Berean mind. Martin Luther checked the Bible for himself. He found out that some of the things the Catholic Church had been teaching did not conform to what the Bible taught. He began to preach and teach that the Bible was the source of truth, not the Roman Catholic Church. John Calvin started writing a book. He called it the Institutes. The Institutes have a number of versions because John Calvin kept learning more things. And he said, oh my goodness, I learned that. I better put it in the Institutes. So there are a number of revisions to the Institutes. We have the last version. And there are many others that have studied the Bible. And we can read what they have learned. But that does not exempt us from studying the Bible ourselves. The only way we can become convinced about certain truths in the Bible is to learn it for ourselves, not rely on what someone else has learned. And we have a tremendous advantage over the Jewish Christians at that time. 
They only had the Old Testament writings. We have New Testament writings. And so we want to compare the New Testament to the Old Testament. And we certainly will learn a lot. Even this psalm that we read. Didn't you hear words in that psalm that are written in the New Testament? The New Testament and the Old Testament are related. And we can see how prophecy in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. And then we read another thing about those Bereans. They studied the scriptures on a daily basis. I think Paul had a little class every day. And so as soon as Paul was done with the class, they were studying the scriptures to make sure what he said was true. The next day, Paul had another class. In the evening, they were studying the scriptures to make sure they knew that what Paul was saying was true. Don't you think that was a lot of stuff on Paul? Paul had to make sure that he really was quoting the scriptures accurately, that he was explaining things carefully, because he knew that everything that he said was going to be scrutinized. And the next day, the Bereans would come back and say, um, you said this. Can you clarify a little bit on this point? I read this too, but I'm not sure if I understand everything. That's how we should be studying the scriptures. And Christians who study the scriptures and meditate upon the word of God on a daily basis begin to think like how the scriptures teach us. And we begin to, to act how the scriptures teach us to act. And that's how we cultivate a Berean mind or a Berean spirit. And so in conclusion, we learn these lessons. One, don't be discouraged by opposition. It's going to happen. Expect it to happen. Be ready for it. Preparation is always helpful. Because when you recognize that there's opposition coming, you will know how to meet that op opposition. Secondly, even the enemies of the gospel speak valuable truths. Sometimes as Christians, when we hear somebody saying something that is totally anti-Christian, we just stop listening. We leave the room. Sometimes it's good if you stay in the room. And you listen to what they're saying because you may find a point where you will be able to talk to them about why they think the way that they think. I'm not saying this always happens, but it is something that we as Christians can use because truths come out even in the most unchristian conversations. Thirdly, know when to leave a difficult situation. We don't want to completely shut doors. We want open doors with people. We may have opportunities in the future. And Paul was able to visit Macedonia again because he hadn't shut those doors completely. He wasn't totally banned from Macedonia. Fourthly, missionary success is God's work. I could go on the street corner and witness to every single person that walks by and I will only be successful is if God makes a hearer believe 
in the gospel. It's nothing that I can say that's going to make somebody believe. So we need to be wise in who we speak to, but we need to spread the word of God everywhere. We need to pray that God will raise up talented and humble men and women to dedicate their lives to preach and teach the gospel. And last of all, cultivate a Berean mind. Immerse yourselves in the scriptures and let the scriptures guide your daily life.